Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I hope that you are well and friends. We're so glad to have you um, this, this morning. If you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. We're going to begin reading there in verse 14 in just a, in just a few moments. I just want to say first that if you were here on Wednesday night... Uh, you might have noticed that my voice was totally going out, and I am so thankful that I've made a complete recovery within 24 hours or so, and I'm so glad that I can speak and preach this morning because I was highly doubted, doubting that as of, as of Wednesday, so I'm really grateful for that. Um, last week, we introduced from Exodus chapter 7 the beginning, at least in Exodus, as we can see this showdown that is about to take place between Yahweh, God, the Lord, and Pharaoh. Or even deeper, as we've, we, we, we dig deeper into God's word, we see that it is the Lord versus evil. And versus the evil one. The works of evil are represented in the text. We see it in, in the text. We saw it last week. We'll see it again this week. It's represented in the text by the Egyptians' false religion and false gods. In chapter 7, the Lord told Moses to, to go with Aaron and command to Pharaoh again, let my people go that they may go and worship me. That's in verse 1. The Lord through Moses and Aaron will multiply. He tells them, I will multiply my signs and wonders to the Egyptians. Verse 2. And to what end? That the Egyptians should know that Yahweh is God. And he says, I will stretch my hand out against Egypt to show them and to tell them and to bring my people out of captivity. Verse 6. Now that verse is, is vitally important and sets up for us what's about to take place in the next six chapters or so. It's vitally important because our Lord has his own sovereign purposes for bringing about his righteous judgment upon this land and upon that people and upon the king of Egypt so that they will know that he is Yahweh. Now we've heard that the Lord will and has been hardening Pharaoh's heart, verse 4. To the point where he is not even going to listen to the commands. Moses, you're going to go do what may sound absurd to you. He's not going to listen, but be obedient anyways. And he's not going to listen to the commands that Moses is going to give him. Again, God's sovereign purposes. That only God will show his glory. And he will stretch out his hand upon Egypt to do so. Now, thankfully, in the text by now, we get to the place where it's no more uh, Moses going back and questioning the Lord. And Moses and Aaron, they, they go to Pharaoh. And this is where the showdown begins. Because there specifically, the Lord gives instructions to Aaron and Moses. This is exactly what I want you to do. In fact, I want you to give him a sign because he's the kind of guy that's going to ask for a sign. And I want you to give him a sign. And the first sign that I'm going to give you is the one that I already gave you. You're going to take the staff that you have, and you're going to throw it on the ground, and that staff is going to change into a serpent. And so they do. And this is a full frontal assault against the sovereignty of Pharaoh. That's what we talked about last week. Full frontal assault against the sovereignty of Pharaoh in Egypt and all of their false worship and serpent gods uh, and by creating this serpent right in their, right in their midst. But Pharaoh is, is not necessarily amused because he's got his own bros. He's got his own fellows, right, that come up. His own magicians, they come up and they replicate the same sign by transforming their staffs into serpent. They throw them on the ground and by their quote-unquote secret arts, as we talked about last week, they turn into serpents. What a show. Now we got three serpents standing, or at least that's what we think. Three serpents now there. But all they could do is duplicate what the Lord had already done. They could only copycat and counterfeit. But the moment that's just kind of thrown right in there that we saw last week, the drop of the mic moment, is when the serpent of the Lord eats the serpents that the magicians create. 
swallows them up whole. Now, I didn't, I didn't say this last week, but I thought about this when I was writing this out this week, is, is I thought to myself, how do, what a weird situation. Not only just like the dropping the mic and they walk out as, you know, the little thug glasses come on, uh, you know, kind of stuff like that, uh, Moses there. But how about when Aaron went and picked the staff back up and the magicians had nothing to pick up? That would have, that would have been awesome. Anyways, and they, they walked out, you know, uh, dropping the bomb. And this was, again, showing the absolute sovereignty of God over Egypt and not to mention the foreshadowing of the future attraction, the coming attraction that's about to take place. And then lastly, in verse 13, again, we hear, we hear the explanation for us, an explanation for, for Aaron and Moses, sort of like, see, I told you so. Because behind the scenes, something else is happening, and that is, again, the sovereignty of God, not just over creation, but of the hearts of men. The heart of Pharaoh is, is, is hardened to accomplish the purposes of God, but also Pharaoh has hardened his heart as well to keep himself enslaved to his own sinful desires and pride, making him utterly blind to the word of God. The ongoing tragedy is this plight of natural man having hard hearts to the truth of God's word. And that spills over into our text this morning. So looking at verse 14, let's read on to the end of the chapter in verse 25. Then the Lord said <clears throat> to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take your hand, of hand, take your hand the staff that turned into the serpent. And you shall say to him, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And Yahweh, the Lord, said to Moses, say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the, the Lord Yahweh commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up his staff and he struck the waters of the Nile. And all the water of the Nile turned into blood. And the fish of the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink the water of the Nile. And there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for the water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days after the Lord had struck the Nile. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. I've titled this sermon, First blood, the Nile turns to blood, for obvious reasons. But also, I like the movie Rambo, and I'm the child of the 80s, which has absolutely nothing to this text, and I'm not going to try to make some kind of illustrative link to it. But here in this passage, the Lord strikes the first major blow against Egypt. We've come to the second sign often called the, the first of the, the plagues. And the Bible refers to them mostly as signs because they are pointing, they're pointing to God. 
who has said, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all his signs and wonders. And there's 11 signs. We encountered the first one last week. And then they go all the way to chapter 12. In each different, each of the signs are different, and yet they still have the same purpose. There's a unity in them that have the same purpose, and that is destroying Egypt's worldviews, destroy their belief system in, in their false gods. And each of these is a sign that is systematically going right at the heart of their false deities to show that only Yahweh is the true God. We see that with the text. He, he specifically says it. And I love that because the Bible specifically gives us, when it gives us signs and wonders, they're always accompanied with explanations. Turn to the Gospel of John and you'll see the same thing that Jesus does. It's always pointing to the same thing. So the Egyptians, they had this pantheon of gods that they worshipped. Somewhere around 115 gods. We thought we had a lot of gods. But around 80 of them were their most important gods. And generally, they're split up into three different groups, right, of these particular 80 gods. And they're, they're split up in these three groups that address these very particular natural forces of Egypt that they tend to enjoy. And one of those happens to be the Nile River and the land and the sky. And so when you look at how the Lord sends these signs, these, these 11 signs, he, he does so attacking their worldview, attacking their, their gods, attacking their idols, these, these gods who were to be sovereign over the land and sovereign over the, the river and the sky. And systematically, the Lord undermines the pluralism of Egypt. But the question I had that I asked myself is why now, right? Certainly the Lord is, is confronting them, but why, why now is there such a showdown? Right? Why now is, is, is Pharaoh hardening his heart so much? Clearly we know God's hardening his heart, but Pharaoh is also hardening his heart. There hasn't been a problem for over 400 years necessarily that Egypt has had with Yahweh. Why now? Israel only has one God. They're, they're cool with that. And he's spoken to the Israelites. Hey, they're cool with that. No problem. To Pharaoh and all of Egypt, was most of the time, was no problem until now. It wasn't offensive. It wasn't a problem. They can have their God as long as they stay my slaves, but they can have my, their own God. Now, we live in a culture, we live in a culture, and I've told you all so, several times, that is, that is filled with chronological snobbery. And chronological snobbery means that, that, that we, because we're in 2023, that we are, we are so modern and we are so advanced that, that everything that we do is right and better and everything in the past is wrong. And therefore, everybody in the past is wrong and evil and there's nothing redeeming. We're always better because we are, we are modern. But the truth is, is our culture is really not that different. Our culture is really not that different from what we see from Pharaoh. Pharaoh's posture, the posture that he has set up against God in his, his, his worldview and even his own ideas are really not that different from what we see in people today. In those around us. And maybe even attend to be in our own hearts. Our culture is a very pluralistic culture. We have a pantheon of gods. We live in a very religious culture, just like they do. And the same question that Moses or that, that Pharaoh asked Moses is the exact same question that our culture says to Christians and to Christianity. Why should I obey his voice? Who is this Lord? It's the same question. 
Biblical Christianity, for the most part, is not offensive to people. What we believe in being a part of the church is really not that offensive. We gather today not under protests around us or threats around us, and praise God for that. Now, there are a percentage of people who are militant, atheistic, and they're miserable, and they're loud. Certainly not all atheists are miserable, but the loud ones are. But for the most part, in our culture, Christianity really is not that much of a problem. It's not much of a problem for us. Following the teachings of the Bible, going to church, especially here in Statesboro. Now, I understand, I've preached this, that's changing, that's eroding uh, around us, and certainly now it's definitely become different in different parts of the, of the country and certainly the world. But where the problem comes in, just like in Egypt, is when God begins to tell me what to do and how I should live my life. Now we got a problem. And that's where we hear Pharaoh's question back in chapter 5. Who is this God that I should listen to them? Who is Yahweh? What name is that? And the reason why this is so difficult in our culture in particular is because we have adopted such a postmodern or post-truth worldview. Meaning truth is no longer based upon what is, what is factual, but it's based upon what feels good or seems good to the individual. It's no longer speak the truth, tell the truth. It's turned into speak your truth or tell my truth. As if your truth can be opposing to actual objective truth or objective reality. And certainly, I hope that you can hear the difference. One of, this is one of the things that we've been learning on Wednesday nights in our series on truth, objective facts. There seem to be no longer useful except for that something to ascribe our preferred position. And then that makes the aim of truth to exalt personal preferences. That's one of the things we've learned. And so when we say as Christians, as we read according to the Bible, thus says the Lord, or here's what the, the, the Bible says, here is what God has said is good about relationships, what God has said is good about gender and sexuality and science and marriage and parenting and life and birth and church and theology. Himself, objective morality, His Son, death, the earth, creation, and so on and so forth. Our culture is of Hoard by the very fact that we can hold to such objective truth. Because they want to create their own truth. In fact, nowadays, and I would say by very foolish and weak individuals say this, is that objective truth, and when you say objective truth, that's doing violence. Our culture is really not that much different from Pharaoh in Egypt. And the signs that God has given, particularly the beginning of this one, is, is answering to this postmodern relativistic, worldly, sinful thinking. Because in this passage, God makes very known the very truth that he is God and there is none other despite what man says or despite what man questions when they ask, who is the Lord to tell me what to do? So our text can be split up into three sections. The first is verses 14 through 19 when the Lord gives Moses the short update of Pharaoh's condition and then tells him specifically this is the words that you are to say to Pharaoh and the actions and the commands that Aaron is supposed to do with its staff. The second section the second section is verses 20 and 21 when Moses do exactly what the Lord specifically commands, and at no surprise, 
the Lord does exactly what he says he is going to do. And the last section is verses 22 through 25, where we get a threefold reaction to this particular sign from the magicians and from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Now, the first point of this sermon from, is, comes from verses 14 through 21. First blood, God's demand to man found in a sign. And in this massive sign, because this clearly is a, a, a massive sign for all to perceive and to see, the sign of turning the, the entire Nile River into blood, God is showing and saying very clearly his demand to man that unmistakably you are to know that I am Yahweh, that I am God. The significance of this sign is unmistakable. I mean, just to give you a few facts of the, the Nile River, it is 4,130 miles long. And just to put that in perspective, the Mississippi River, which, by the way, did you know that the Mississippi River is the second longest river in the United States? The first being the Missouri, by like one mile. Isn't that wild? But the Mississippi, the one that we really all know, is, is only 2,340 miles long, starting up at Trickle all the way up in northern Minnesota, going all the way down to, as you know, the Gulf. The Nile stretches all the way from Lake Victoria in Tanzania, and it actually flows north. It's a nor northern flowing river all the way through, into, through Egypt, through seven different countries, Egypt, and into the Mediterranean Sea. The side fact about the, the Nile River, though it's the second longest river in the world, Amazon River being the longest, the, the Nile actually has one of the smallest, or the, the smallest flow rates in cubic centimeters, or cubic meters when it comes to water. And when the Nile gets its way to Egypt, which is the end of the river, it pours into the Mediterranean, and where it pours into the Mediterranean, just before it splits into a, a river delta right at the city of Cairo, and the end of the delta on the Mediterranean Sea is the city of Alexandria. Now, what's, again, amazing about this river, you can look at it, look on it, uh, you can Google right now, but a, a Google map image of of Egypt and kind of zoom in on Egypt and you will see something I think is just quite astounding and what is really amazing because this river basically flows right through Egypt and all of Egypt is really just a desert. I mean all the pictures you think of Egypt of the pyramids it's all in a desert and it's in one of the largest the largest deserts in all the world the Sahara Desert right there in northern Africa which takes up almost that whole northern part of the continent. But as this river flows uh, north through Egypt, and as you, you can look at that Google map and that space image, the whole line of the river, you can't even see the river from space, but what you do see is this line of trees just flowing north, this green, dark green strip flowing all the way north until you get to Cairo, and then it splits right out. It's actually in quite the amazing sight until it hits the Mediterranean Sea. And I wanted to give you a visual of this because I want you to understand that the, the Nile, because it would be an understatement to just say the Nile is just a, a landmark or it's just a, a, a really neat long river. Uh, ancient Greek historians uh, understood it. They, they said all know that Egypt is the Nile and the Nile is Egypt. Without the Nile, there would have been no Egypt or at least the, the power that Egypt had. The Nile River is the center of all of their life. It is the center of their economic power and strength. The river was their lifeblood. And I use that word very specifically today. It is their lifeblood. It is the basic foundation that their entire civilization is built upon. Because if it wasn't there, their land would just be another desert. There would be no way for them to sustain life and culture and build a society in the way that they had. No way. The river gave them transportation and shipping up and down the river. It was used to irrigate their crops in, uh, uh, in, in a desert. It was their main water supply for drinking, drinking water. It was a source of food by harvesting fish from the river. 
It helped set their calendar. Because naturally every year the river would flood and they knew what time of the year it was when the river would flood. And when the river would flood, it would, it would give moisture to all of their topsoil that they can begin planting. So to understand why the Lord chose this sign first, we must understand how distressing of a sign this must have been for the Egyptians to see their lifeblood turn to blood. Because this is something that they were utterly, daily dependent upon. Think about the things that you are utterly, daily dependent upon. How about if electricity just shut off? Gone. How much would we lose? We could sustain things for a few days. We could run our generators for a few days, but after a while, this is how vital it was. And it probably one of those things that they didn't really think about too much except for in their worship. But as we, we read the text, Moses is told to go to Pharaoh, who in the morning, he's going out to the river. And we don't know why Pharaoh's going out to the river in, in the morning. Certainly, it is an image back to uh, Exodus chapter 2 when uh, Pharaoh's daughter goes out to the river, right? So we want to think that. However, this could have been a, a morning of ritual where the king goes out to to the river to, to worship. And for good reason, the, the Egyptians had gods that they worshipped of the river. And the primary god of the Nile River was the goddess, I kid you not, her name is Happy. H-A-P-I. Happy. And Happy was worshipped so that she would give them all the fruit and bounty that the river could provide so that they could be have the fullness of life grow their, all their crops and be happy. And I want you to understand the reality then for, that's happening. Because again, man hasn't changed. We all want to be happy. There's a good catchy song about that. We want to be happy. We want good lives. We want fullness. We want richness. We want vitality. We want long life. We, we want everything that the land can give us. And every man and every culture all around the world has this very instinct to carve out something to achieve that, to do that. This is still universal Universal today, it may not be worshiping at the river, the goddess of happy, but certainly it's at the worship of something. A culture and economy isn't driven by the same instinct to be happy and full, but sometimes, or maybe it is. It may not be driven by a river goddess, but it's driven by that same desire Consider every TV commercial you have ever seen or internet commercial nowadays. Every product is promising you what? They're, they're promising you happiness and fullness and life and vitality. I mean, even in the dumbest things. I mean, it, it could be a pizza commercial, right? A, a pizza commercial and a, or, or a, a, a Taco Bell. Not to pick on Taco Bell. We like Taco Bell. And the picture is what? The picture of, of people eating this beautiful pizza. And of course, they are all beautiful people. And, and they're living in the greatest of places. They got the nicest of cars. And it's always the nicest Taco Bell and Pizza Hut or whatever you've ever seen in your life. Right? And, and it's the greatest. They open it up and it's steaming and all. And everyone's like, yeah, we got our pizza. Happy life, vitality. We got all our friends around. We're going to eat this pizza, and we're going to enjoy all that life has because we bought this pizza, or we have a sack full of tacos. They're selling us happiness. They're selling us comfort and fullness and life. But all you're buying is what? A greasy pizza or soggy tacos, especially by the time you get home. Or, or, or maybe it's the promise that of, a, of, a, of a Jeep Wrangler. Man, you buy that instantly, you're going to be, you're going to be transformed. You're going to move all your, this Jeep's going to instantly find its way right on the beaches of Baja. 
And man, you're going to be cruising the tops down. You're going to glance over your wife and her hair's going to be blowing the wind. You're both going to smile. You got new Ray-Bans on. Your kids are buckled up and they're asleep actually, which is awesome. And life is fantastic. And somehow there's a Jeep that fits my whole family. But you, you, you understand, what's, or, 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 or here's even the better one, the Jeep that blows through a, a pile of five-foot snow on a Utah mountain. Nobody does that. It promises us the freedom, the life, the fullness that you've always wanted. Right? This is what it's, and the thrill, right? The, the thrill that we feel that we're always, we're always missing. The thrill and the thought of you won't be alone your best friend or your spouse or your family will always be with you smiling, clean, young, hip. But reality sets in, and maybe I'm just a pessimist, but it just doesn't make sense when you put it down to it because it's just another car. It's just another taco. It's just another pizza. The thrill wears off until we see the next commercial or the next new design, and then we're like, oh, man, maybe they got it right this time. Buying happiness will never get us there. It's, it's the same idea. The worship of happy at the river is the same idea that we construct in our minds with just other things. Happy of the goddess of Nile is there, and she'll give you the fullness of life. And all that the river has to offer, just come and worship, and I'll give you fullness. But the Lord here, Yahweh himself, what he is saying is not only is he accomplishing the plan of the redemption of his people, we don't want to miss that. That's the purpose here. Underneath, he's, he's, he's going to rescue his people for the worship of him. We see that in verse 16. But he also takes this time, these, this, these steps of exposing Pharaoh and all the Egyptians that happy and all the other gods that they are worshiping are false. And, and they are not the ones that give us fullness of life. Everything that they've built their lives on is what? It's just sand. And the Lord exposes it as a lie when he takes it away. Same thing. Same thing with us. Take one thing away and see what happens. What? What? That's mine. Kids do it. We do the same thing. Take one thing away. That's my electricity. I paid for it. I deserve it. My internet. Ah, it's out. Take the one thing away. And I... And I and those are trivial things. Put it to more weightier things. And God does something amazing here. Verse 20 makes it very clear. He does it in plain sight for all to see. Verse 20. Because why? He wants them to know. He wants us to know. He says, I will strike the water that, the, that is the Nile and it shall turn into blood. Verse 17. We should understand this as it is, as it is clearly written, brothers and sisters, very much so. Here it is that God's word is 100% true. And that is the whole river turned into blood, the canals, the ponds, the pools of water, vessels of wood and vessels of stone filled up with blood, verse 19. There is nothing in the text that tells us otherwise that we should believe besides that very fact and very truth. And that any water that was associated with the river turned into blood. It wasn't a trick. It wasn't just some natural phenomenon that, that some people like to explain. That, oh, maybe some red soil fell into the river and then it flowed down, making the appearance that the river had turned to, uh, turned to blood. But that, the text gives no indication whatsoever that that was the case. The text tells us 100% that the, that the river turned into blood. Cut yourself, blood comes out, that's what it turns into millions and millions and millions and millions of gallons. There it was. The lifeblood of Egypt turned into blood. And the text actually tells us how bad it gets. In fact, in such, such a description, man, I kind of tore up my Bible here a little bit. In, in such a short description, but yet it tells us very vividly how bad it was. The fish died. That'd be a bad day, wouldn't it, Patrick? All the fish died. And the river stank. That's a big deal. Ever been around a place where it smells all the time? 
and the people became weary and thirsty. Can you imagine? On a much smaller scale, I can tell you that I can. I grew up on the east coast of Florida in Brevard County near the beach. And you can't get to the beach without crossing over the Indian River, and you knew you were getting close to the Indian River because you could smell it. You could smell the, the rotting riverbed and some stagnant water. And that's just the way it was. But this is far from worse because it wasn't just rotting riverbeds. It was rotting fish and coagulating blood. And such a supernatural sign wrecked their economy. And it wrecked their heart of worship, this, hap, this deity, happy, and others. And the Lord exposed what they, they trusted in for their lives and as their, that their hope, all their hope, has just been a lie. And you know the Lord, as often that he does in our own lives, he does this very same thing, that he exposes the lies and he exposes the idols of our worship things that we place hope in instead of him. And because of the reality of what the Bible teaches us and what life shows us is that the fullness of life does not come from this world, but it comes only through Christ. And just as true were the words of the blood of the Nile is the words of Jesus in John 10.10, 10, one of my favorite verses. That the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but he has come, I have come. I came that they may have life and have life abundantly. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying, and I don't think that Jesus is even saying that an unbeliever can't have a good life. I'm not saying that. I think we see that all around us. They rem remember what we, we just talked about. They can buy a Jeep, right? And that instantly solves everything or a better house, or find a better job, or travel, enjoy better food, good foods, whatever it may be, or homes. But, but what Jesus is saying is that they will never have true life. And that life will never be abundant. It'll never be full. They'll, they'll always be looking for that next happy, for that next thing. And the reason why is because we were created to worship our creator. Instead, we turned to worship creation. You're created to be in relationship with, with him. And the only way to do that is through his son, Jesus Christ, who has shed his blood on the cross. So, brothers and sisters and friends, sometimes we can trick ourselves into believing that if I can get to this particular point in my, my life or I can just obtain the very next thing, then, then I will be happy. I will be satisfied. If I get that job, if I get that promotion, if I get that, uh, or if I graduate, if I get, when I get married or when I buy a bigger house or we make more money or win the lotto, my team wins a championship or buy the next thing, get the next car, whatever it may be. And what we often find out is that when we get those things, we may be happy for a while, but just for a season we move on yet to the next thing, proving that we were never satisfied in the first place. Because despite what Snickers bars tell you that it satisfies, it is not a solid roast beef sandwich. And in doing so, when we turn just to the next thing, we expose, we're actually exposing ourselves that we're trusting in other things and saying that there are other things that actually give me life, that give me lifeblood. Right, that, that give me vitality and, and fullness and flourishing. Give me fullness of, of life. And oftentimes, it is God's mercy to reveal to us where, the things that we've been chasing. To reveal and to expose and then to just let us fall flat on our faces to reveal us those things. Because they will never satisfy. 
So God's demand to us is to what? Worship him. And to see and understand and know him, that only in him is the fullness of life. Nothing else. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing. And Egypt being set here is an example and should be an example to every single one of us. The reality of this. The second point of the sermon this morning is man's continual search still finds its way to failing hopes. In the third and the last section of our passage, verses 23 to 25, just a reminder, let's look back at verse 22. It says, But the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he didn't even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. So we get to the scene again, right? It's done, the rivers turned the Nile, things are going bad. And just like before, we saw in the last passage, here's these magicians, I think, probably got the glance from the Pharaoh. You going to do something about this? And the pharaohs, or the, the magicians, they come up and they, they're able to do the same. They're able to do the same thing by their own secret arts. I don't think they're as cocky as they, this time as they were before. And they can turn water into blood. Now again, we don't know exactly what they did. They did it by their secret arts. The irony here, just like the serpents, the magicians are useless because they only change the blood or the water into blood and not blood into water. They were useless at reversing the sign. In fact, all they really did was prove that they can make things worse. And that's what they did. They made, they made more blood. They didn't have the power to mess with the Lord's miracle. Again, as we talked about Satan's power last week, again, we see an example of Satan's power is just self-defeating. It is self-defeating. Counterfeit signs, false, and as wondrous as sometimes they may be, ultimately, they all serve the greater glory of God. The supreme example is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. At the time, it must have seemed like Satan's greatest triumph when Christ was hanging on the cross, when, when he was suffering, when he was bleeding, when he was dying on, the, on that cross. And all the followers of Jesus were scattered, and all that evil was, was excited and roaring. But what Satan didn't know was that Jesus hanging on the cross, he was not hanging there for himself, but he was turning away God's wrath. He was propitiating God's wrath by atoning for the sins of his people. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And there Satan discovered that his greatest triumph was actually his bitter death and defeat. The death of Christ was the very thing that God used to grant sinners eternal life. And as catastrophic as this sign was for Egypt, we see and we feel exactly what it means for Pharaoh to have that hard heart right here. Because he was still enslaved to the lies of he believed of his own religion and his own power. And now here, what is, is very, it's just sad. Just, if you look at that text we just read, it's just so sad because clearly the Lord's sign has just totally exposed all of them. Guess what? Happy's not coming through. She's not going to rescue you and, and save you. But still, Pharaoh's response is, nah, I'm going home. 
and I'm not going to listen, and I'm not going to surrender. He, he wouldn't listen. He just went home. What does it say? He went home, he shut his doors, and he ignored everything for seven days, verse 25, and just pretended that nothing was wrong. Pharaoh's heart, hardened heart, blinded him from seeing, even here, this sign of the mercy of God and showing him the truth of Yahweh's sovereign rule and that he has none. And instead of trusting in the Lord, he is content to just go to, with himself to his home and just pretend like it does, didn't even exist. And then verse 24, another sad response. What did the people do? Instead of being able to drink from the river, what are they content to do? To dig ditches by the river and to drink out of holes. This isn't a good thing. And certainly desperate times call for desperate measures, but consider what their false worship has led them to do. To go dig a hole and drink the water that they could scrounge out of it. Talk about being humbled. And brothers and sisters, do we yet not see still the same kind of reactions to the mercies of God? And yes, I, I use this, the word mercy because judgment can also be merciful. Because until Christ returns, that judgment is pointing to salvation. Do people still turn to other things when the gods that they have been trusting just failed them? Of course they do. We see it all around. We, we actually see the doubling down. They dig the ditches even dip deeper. And leaves people literally digging in their own filth and waller to just find something. And like we talked about last week, that is the futility of sin. Is that it leaves us, when exposed, it leaves us insanely digging for water in a ditch. That, that insanity looks like in our culture today, the person who says, my life's a mess, I'm losing everything, fill in the blanks on why they're losing everything. Divorce, infidelity, alcoholism, drug addiction, affairs, whatever you want to put. And often now what people say, when they say, my life's a mess, I, I'm losing everything, their mindset is, is I'm going to go change my life by, by turning toward me. That I'm going to turn my life around by turning toward me and my own self-improvement and my own self-betterment and my own self-help and get therapy. And do you see the problem here? The problem is, is again, digging the dit ditches for the water. That's asking the, the person who has created the problem to solve the problem that they're totally incapable of solving. It's like us as a country trusting the Federal Reserve to fix inflation when they're the ones that created it. If you don't get that, the, the foolishness of our, of our minds that this is what natural man does. We turn to failing hopes to save us. We, we turn to the next best thing, and that next best thing ends up turning into digging a hole for water. Brothers and sisters, where do you turn when the mercies of God expose the false hopes in your life? Do you turn and trust in Christ and look to Him to know Him more and to repent of, him, of, of that sin? The Bible really only gives us two options, and this passage clearly tells us to bow the knee and to submit to Christ or to be judged in a just judgment. God's demand is the worship of Him and that He will be known. And this is why man is created. This is why we were created, and that is to, to know Him, to worship Him, and to glorify Him. But as we have said, yet so often we are satisfied just to dig ditches for dirty water instead of drinking the living water right in front of us. And this certainly explains so much about our culture today and maybe even ourselves and maybe some of our, our, our past. 
because outside of the, besides the grace of God, this is probably the place that most of us have been in at one point or another. And I, and I say that it is the, the grace of God that even in this sign we see the grace of God that in the millions of gallons of blood that God uses to judge Egypt, we see throughout the Bible that blood is a sign of judgment. It's often used as a, it's a sign of, of, of judgment. In particular, we see it later will be expounded in the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system which is built upon the sign of the shedding of blood for the atonement of sin. And of course, brothers and sisters, as Christians on this side of the cross, that should point us to the cross. The atonement that was accomplished by Christ, where his blood was shed, and it was spilt out as a final judgment for our sin. And that in the cross, the wrath of God was not poured out on Egypt. It was not poured out on Israel. And yet, it has not been poured out on you or poured out on me. But at the cross, it was poured out on the Son of God. Who took your place and took my place. And by the grace of God and the power of God, he broke the power of sin in death and has freed you from the futility of seeking after false hopes of digging your own ditches and giving you living water. Hallelujah! Well, what a Savior! What a Savior! Hallelujah! That we, we can look to Him! And then everything else, right, is, is just good that we can give God glory for. So keep your eyes on him. Keep the posture of your heart toward him. Because it is only in him, in him alone, as we've read from John 10.10, 10, that we find the fullness of life, the abundant life. And brothers and sisters, I, I, I just want to say that even in this morning, I think we get to experience the feels of that in the church. We experience some of the reality of that as the gathered church, of being encouraged together in God's word. Rejoicing together as, as one people, as one body, as we will commemorate in just a few minutes. Because he is with us, and we are with him. Praise God. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.